Good morning, everyone. The uh, opening show jingle in a horribly prophetic harbinger of things to come isn't working at the moment. So uh, please imagine some very dramatic music saying that I'm coming to you live from the end of the Metropolitan Line. Uh, imagine me filling that gap, speaking very quickly. Uh, good morning. It's Monday. It's only the 15th of November somehow, despite the fact that it feels infinitely nearer to the end of term than that. We're only two weeks in. I'm Tabitha McIntosh here in the breakfast slot in for the last week before Mal returns. And today I'm talking about the history of the educational present as ever, EduBlogging edition with special guest Alex Wright, who hopefully will be able to call in very soon because he is just sitting in his car at the moment. Um, I've got some questions for him. Let's see if he can call in as soon as possible. But what I will be doing before that is um, talking you through uh, 25th of April, 2012. And what happened on the 25th of April, 2012, is that the Secretary of State for Education, Michael Gove, gave a speech on the future of education in which the education blogosphere was formally enshrined as the engine of change for education. Uh, he said, it's teachers at every level who are shaping the future. The voices of great teachers are becoming more and more audible in the education debate. Now, this is a history that people who blog um, edu Twitter, especially edu Twitter veterans, are very, very familiar with. But one, I think that new teachers joining or, or even older teachers who, who haven't been terminally online, like some of us, <coughs> me, know about is that there was a moment where the education blogosphere was the primary engine of um, education change in the nation. So let's go back to Michael Gove. He's saying voices across the political spectrum are talking honestly about the profession's strengths and weaknesses, successes, failures, and priorities for the future. Lots of people blogged about the speech he gave that day, and I will... Um, I will mention who he mentioned. Uh, let me just send over to Alex in case he's having problems. A link to the show. Uh, everyone listening who knows about that period will probably be able to list the names for me of the people who were mentioned uh, in that particular speech by Michael Gove. But as Sam Friedman said, the same day after listening to the speech, Twitter and blogs are a lifeline, a way to access at least some unvarnished truth about what people really think. And while I don't want to overdo the impact of the blogosphere, policy is still primarily driven by traditional internal processes, I do think its rise is having quite a profound effect. Suddenly an insightful classroom teacher has a direct line of communication to the Secretary of State and his advisors. Anyone can make a case against a policy and if it's strong enough to be picked up and retweeted a few dozen times, there's a good chance it will be read by the people who matter. I can think of a fair few changes. Uh, hopefully that is Alex coming in. We'll go back to Sam Freeman after we talk to Alex. No, it's gone away again. <laughs> Let me go back. Uh, I can think of a fair few changes to nascent policy ideas off the back of a particularly perceptive blog post, which has raised points that have been missed during internal discussions. And not necessarily, Sam says, from the bloggers you'd expect. Last bit of Sam's blog. None of this means we don't need more structured ways of ensuring teachers' voices are heard. Let me try that again. 
Hi, incomprehensible letter string name. Are you on? Hello. Hi, is that Alex? Yes, hello, Tabitha. <laughs> How did you choose that username? <laughs> what username is... Oh, my God, what yeah. the hell is that? So I, I, right. thought, I thought you were a rando calling in to um, possibly spam us with, with obscene... Oh, the very idea. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, no, 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 I shan't do that. I'll save that for a future blog. <laughs> XGPQMIVM. That's not a name you normally go by then? Not no, I, I, how would you even... Uh, no, it's not. I, I don't... I'm surprised I made it on, to be perfectly honest with you. But I'm sitting in the car in, uh, in Northamptonshire, um, looking suspicious, I think, actually. So, uh, so we better crack on, haven't we? <laughs> All right. Now, I think uh, you you embrace chaos, so I didn't yeah. send you a list of questions beforehand. That's um, fine. Oh, no, I've written some questions, though, just to, to trip oh, you up. Oh, please. No, please do. So here's the first one. You said yesterday you think edu-blogging might, <laughs> might be dead. What? What? Tell me what you meant by that. I think it might be dead. I feel like uh, you said that. Um, no, I, I, no I, edu-blogging might be dead. I, for me, it is. Um, in this, well, at least it's dormant or it's in a coma. It's in a coma. My uh, edgy blog is in a coma in the sense that I just got bored with it. And I'm not saying here that, that, I, that it's so incredibly boring uh, for everybody. And in fact, you know, there's plenty of blogs going on. You know, um, I wouldn't be kind of the teacher I am today if it weren't for Andy, you know, Codextrous, for example. Mm -hmm. and, and Chris Curtis, I think, was the first blogger I ever read as, a, as like an NQT. Um, but I just got bored writing about it. And, and I want to be clear, I, I didn't get bored writing. I don't get bored teaching or thinking about teaching. I just, I just think that I just felt like I would just repeat myself and I just wanted to write weird stuff. <laughs> so what, what did you used to edu blog about then? So I would write about stuff I did basically in lessons and kind of things I thought about it. So it was, it was kind of pedagogy, I suppose, with an English bent. Mm -hmm. um, and then it, and then the turning point was that I ended up doing this, this 30 blogs in 30 days thing, these kind of atomic, um, these kind of atomic mm. essays they were called. And I ended up going one day I was thinking, I, I haven't got, I haven't got enough to say for 30 days about English teaching. And I, I haven't got enough to say. I'm going to repeat myself. And I, and I ended up gradually putting out these personal sort of essays. And I, and I remember people responding way more, with great, 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 greater interest that's, to the personal that, stuff. Yeah, yeah. That, that's one of my questions coming up. But that's only, that's the time I started reading you. I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't reading you when you were writing about English. I don't Sorry. blame you, to be honest with you. I mean, they were fine. They were serviceable. But I'm just a normal sort of, I'm just an English teacher. You know, I'm not, nothing special. I don't have any great insights into the profession I've been teaching since, what, 2013? So mm. I don't know very much, to be honest with you. Most of the time, I just sort of shamble in. And, and if I'm in the right classroom at the right time, it's a good day, you know. So. It sounds like we're very similar teachers. We, we, I think we might be, Tabitha, which is what scares me and delights me in equal measure. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so my question as written goes to straight of what you said. Over the summer, you emerged as a distinct voice with your at Atomic series. Thank you. Um, which is when I started reading and interacting with you. Um, mm. There's been a lot of talk about education and civility and how we talk to each other on Twitter. So I thought it might be worth remembering. I think I was quite rude when we first talked. <laughs> oh, I was. I, well, I know you were fine. It was, I think we, I think your propensity for bluntness when somebody doesn't know you. And I think when you're a little sensitive soul like me, you can kind of go, oh, I'm immediately being attacked sort of thing. And I think uh, for a split second, I was like, oh, this person seems to be uh, wanting to catch me out. And then I went away and thought about it and thought, yeah, but I think she might be right. 
And, I, and this is the thing about being wrong. And I think this is kind of central to my philosophy. And this is the reason I write in public is mm. because I want to believe that it's glorious to be wrong. Now, I can't always necessarily say that I will follow that through in practice when I'm actually wrong, because it hurts when you're wrong and you feel like a dick. But you, 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 I think it's really important that A, we are wrong in public and B, we own when we are. And then we learn in public and we grow in public. And I think that that kind of humility is really important. And so when we did interact, I was like kind of, oh, okay, so this is somebody kind of challenging me. And I don't usually get challenged very often. I just mm. sort of do my thing. And, and I went away and thought, no, actually, she's got a point. And then gradually, I think Twitter has been a really big part of this. I've just kind of not so much changed my worldview on things. It's kind of had it gently poked and prodded at and moulded and my own writing kind of reflects that, that journey of thought, I suppose. Now, whether or not that answers the question you originally asked, I don't know because I've forgotten what it was. No, no, I think that that's that's a beautiful answer that I'll go back to. Thank you. Um, Matt Benderveed is saying the trick is never to be wrong. <laughs> I don't think, you know, it's, we, we see a lot about, um, you know, it's, it's Bill Ryan to teach like a champion, which I have to be mean about at least <laughs> once per show. That idea of being wrong, of using error in the classroom, of encouraging error and, and yeah. unshaming it, that, that all sounds great until it's happening to us, I think. Um, I think Definitely. Di Liedem and I basically kind of angry tag-teamed you on whatever that issue was. And, and <laughs> Di, I adore Di, but she is a dog with a bone when she's decided you're wrong about something. But she's been great as well, to be honest uh -huh. with you, because it's that kind of... I realised when I was tweeting that I was thinking, I, I, need, to, I need to shape this better. Because at first you kind of just throw stuff out there and it's all just, you know, it's just it's mundane, sort of quotidian, you know, it, it, and it's like dust in the wind, you know, you throw it out mm. there and it's like these little stabs of ephemera, you know, and you kind of go, oh, it's out there, you know, no one really cares and just spouting off onto the internet. And then someone calls you on it and you go, ah, oh, that was a real thing that a real person said. It wasn't just, you know, a thing on a screen. And I suppose... It made me more accountable, and I think accountability is a really big thing when, I, when I'm writing. I'm, I'm, I'm being accountable for my ideas. I can change them, but I'm being accountable mm. for them at, like, like at that moment in time. And, and, I'm, and I'm going, this is, this, it's, it's kind of a, almost a cry of personhood to go, this is who I am, and I'm accountable for this person who I am. No matter what other horrible things could be going on in my life or the, or, or the wider sphere. And, I, and I'm going, this is, this is me owning up to this i own this now and i think that's a really powerful thing and i think the beginning of that kind of discourse on on twitter with 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 you and i for example i, I started tweeting with a real sense of ownership and then mm. that in turn led to i think better writing I, I i dare to say about my own writing well and i think um yeah i i couldn't agree more um your last three blogs have been quite staggeringly different i mean i'm, I'm saying three is the the snail one the mushroom mm. one and then the the incredibly moving um, experimental one you posted last night. Yeah. And all of them have been about change and time mm. and situating personhood in public while writing in public um, mm. in quite, quite a fascinating way, very different to anything I've read from a teacher. Um, can you talk to us about that shift? Yeah, of course. Um, so I think a, a big part of it will be, and I'm going to be cagey here just because there's, there's the personal and then there's the very personal mm -hmm. and, um, and, and they're like the public personal, if we can kind of hyphenate it. And my public personal is, and I've shared this on, on Twitter and during the blog is my own struggles with depression and anxiety. Um, and I kind of realized that if a big part of dealing with that horribleness was going to be, I had to be public 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I realised they had to be depressed and anxious in public. I went off Twitter for a while and I came back after about a month to all these DMs and, and these messages. And I presumed I'd come back to an empty space where no one would have missed me and loads of people going, where the hell were you? Like, what was going on? I was thinking, hang on, these people who I've never met mm. noticed the space where I was. And I thought, oh my God, I've got to, I've got to, these are these people are my audience and I've got this lovely little corner of edgy Twitter now. This kind of, uh, I think uh, Lou Harrison called it, called it a cult and, uh, and then and good old Hugh, wonderful, avuncular, beautiful Hugh said, we've all got orange jumpers. And I thought, this is so lovely. There's about sort of, sort of 20, 30 people who whenever I post will go, bang, we're reading that. And, mm. and, it's, and it's lovely. What was I saying? Can we go back? What was your question? Oh, the um, process. Yeah, no, it was also, it was the turn to... Right, uh, right, yeah. yes. So, so, so I kind of, so I was struggling, I think, with my own sort of identity and sense of self and my own, my own depression. And I went on antidepressants and I was like, right, sort yourself out now, right? So I, um, and I realised that writing, not as a form of therapy, because it's not, it's not as banal as that, but it, but it was a form of honesty. I needed to be honest with myself, but mm-hmm. I think the self can only exist in public with if we're not if we're not in public we don't really exist we only exist in the eyes of others really that performative self and and so i kind of thought i have to be honest here and and i just thought right sod this i'm going to write exactly what's on my mind and if people like it then fine and and i have now and i think this is really important i I said yesterday on twitter i think that everybody should write in public and some people went yeah we should and loads of people went no it's too scary and i (laughs) and i said and, and, and I was going to tweet this, and then I thought, no, I'll save this for, for Tabitha. Um, I, I thought, I, whenever I post, I am terrified. I press that button. Uh, my process, I'm just going to go really briefly onto, onto my process. I write in one go. So mm-hmm. I don't edit at all. I, mm-hmm. I go, what I will do is I have my note-taking app. I use a really weird note-taking app called Rome Research, which is really nerdy. And what it basically does, it lets you make connections between loads and loads of things. So like, I, whenever, I'm like, whenever I'm doing something, I'll write it down and I'll tag it with whatever. So like existentialism or whatever. And, and, I will, and then any time I've kind of written something to do with the same topic, all the other notes will link into it like a graph. A bit like the rhizome, actually. So, I was so going to um, say that. Yeah. yeah, it's exactly like that. And that's kind of how I think. It's like my second brain. And so... Um, what I do is all my notes kind of go into this and I'll kind of, and everything will kind of swill around my head and then something will start to connect and it'll go mushrooms. But what if it's also death? But what if it's also this? And I'll start to find this commonality. And then there will be a moment where the blog kind of appears in like the front of my brain and it will go, write me now. And then I'll just start typing and it will fall out in one go. And, I, and I've always written like that. And the problem is because of my extreme problems with attention, I've always really struggled to maintain a writing habit. But now mm. that I do that, now that I let the ideas kind of swirl and, and connect in my head and then the blog goes, there we go. And then I write it in one go and then I put it onto my Squarespace site and I press publish and I close my eyes. <laughs> and and I go and, and then I, and then and then I just wait and I post it on Twitter and, and I just wait and I and I what I do in that moment where I press publish I say to myself I am a hundred percent okay with everybody in the world hating me for this uh-huh. and I think that's really important as in as in I have decided that it's fine if everybody hates it because I don't if that makes sense not that right. I love it I thought I see problems with my own writing but but I I want to see. I, I just I just make myself okay with it. I go, the worst thing that's gonna happen here is someone's gonna say to you, This is shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and so yeah, someone's just said, um, someone with a really, really weird username has said, putting myself in public is terrified of me. How do you start? Uh, you just 
just do, I suppose. I suppose that's that's kind of what I'm saying here. Is you, is you just do start. Um, you start with some words. For me, it's always just about, the, and I teach my students this, the next sentence. The next sentence has got to link to the one that came before and it's got to push something forward in some sort of way. Um, and I can see, actually, I've just seen uh, Zoe Enser saying, mm. and I can tell that from Zoe's blogging, actually. I'm a big fan of Zoe's blog. And uh, and I can see that she has that same sort of snappy immediacy. Um, and I, yeah. The, and the blogs I like, actually, the, the edgy blogs I like, just despite my apparent pronouncement that the whole thing's dead, um, the blogs I like are ones that have got a real snappy immediacy to them. Yeah, I think um, Zoe, Zoe and I have talked quite a lot about um, interiority and, and cognitive mm. function. And both of us don't have interior voice. Both of us, with these articles and stuff we write, they just kind of sit in the back of our heads and then just get vomited out, fully formed. Yes. Not really big on drafting and stuff. It sounds like mm. you're very similar. Yes. But you've got your interesting, what's the word? Um, Ollie Cavs always talking about it at the moment. That kind of distributed thinking. So you've you've yeah. created a network, um, an externalized yes. network. Yeah. Yes, basically, I, I have to. The problem is, is that I um I, well well I'm I'm being um, I'm being it's no secret I'm being assessed for ADHD and and one of the one of the good things about ADHD is you can hyperfocus and um and you can kind of you and you can get kind of really sucked into an idea and I can sit there and before I know it it's God knows what time and I've been reading about you know the devil's anus mm-hmm. or whatever and um but but the problem is as well is that is that the alternative is that you end up so fractured and I suppose that having that kind of externalized place where I can put all of my ideas is um that's what's been really key for me. And I would actually say to anybody who's struggling with writing or anybody who's struggling with putting themselves out there is just make a connection between one thing you've thought and another thing. How's that similar? How's that different? Why is that like that? And Mm -hmm. and that's all it is for me is I'm just going, oh, right. So that thing there is like that thing. Why is it like that? Could that point to some sort of greater significance? If so, why? What does that mean for me? My my writing's never about answers. It's really just a series of observations. Well, which is, you know, it's a cliche to say it even, but that's what essay means, right? Is to try. So you're Yeah, after Montaigne, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. My boy Montaigne, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I think I want to go back to the the question you did read out, which was uh, putting myself in public is terrifying yeah. for me. Mm. How do you start? Because you talked about when you talked about that answer that you were talking about the process of writing, how do you mm. literally put words on a page? Mm. But, um, but I think really the, the question there is pointing to something else you said about being prepared for people to say, it's awful, please don't sweat mm. in your reply. You know, like putting it out, pressing, you know, post and knowing that it, mm. it could be hated, embracing the idea that it will be hated. Um, yeah and actually maybe seeing that as a kind of a superpower almost i think mm-hmm. that being able you see it on uh, i think twitter's made me really see this like i've seen people on twitter absolutely excoriated I, i've seen i've seen um you know statues brought low as it were metaphorically speaking <laughs> on twitter i have seen you know and you see some dark miserable human behavior but mm-hmm. my react, i don't tend to get too involved with those things and it's not out of some sort of sanctimonious you know post-catholic leaning or anything like that it's 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 more to do with the fact that i'm fascinated by the human beings behind them even when someone's being an absolute turd on mm. on twitter I, I i sit there and i think i think why are you doing that why are you up to that for? What's what's ticking you? What's what's pushing you? Why mm. are you being like that? And I and I really sometimes, and maybe this is because Hugh Hugh Ogilvy hangs around me so much. I kind of want to almost reach out and go, "Hey, you okay?" Because yeah. this is not the action of someone who's okay. And I think sometimes Twitter, with all, it really obfuscates the human being 
for better or for worse, sometimes I think it's good to be able to hide behind your little avatar, you know, and your little handle. Sometimes I think it really hurts us. I think it's almost a form of self-harm to hide so and mm. to kind of snipe and skulk from behind a block or behind a photo, behind a Twitter handle. And I think it's, it's so daunting to reveal that self. It's so it's like wandering out into the Battle of Hastings, you know, with all your bits <laughs> out, you know, and going, hey, English archers, rain upon me, you know. It's like that. I like, I like that. that. I do. The, yeah. Especially the part where your bits are out at the back. Just your bits that's, out and it's just, like, and, and you've no. painted a target on them, you know, <laughs> not like you needed to. So, so I think to kind of pull some of those things together, I think yeah, God, yeah. that writing in public is a response to that, that very um, attenuated, hidden self then. The idea yes. that you are messy and, and experimental and coming together yeah. In public with people watching, your bits out. You are just bits out. Really. But it's Marina um, Abramovic. It's, it's that mm. idea of um, it's yeah. uh, that went in there, I think, because well, what happened first of all was entropy. So uh, we started off with the kind of the uh, the big bang, you know, the low entropy state of her just st- sitting there like anyone wait, wait. could. I'm, I'm going to back you up because not everyone listening will have oh, read right. your blog, yeah. and, and yes. not everyone listening will know about this. Um, it yes. is very famous, but it's still performance art. Like how many people know about performance Rhythm, art? Rhythm Zero from the <laughs> 70s by Marina Bambic. Yeah. Um, she's, she's fascinating. So yeah. she, um, in Naples, in a gallery in Naples, she sat in a chair. There was a table with 72 objects um and on the on it said the performance lasts six hours um you can use any of these objects on me i take full responsibility and there was like a rose there was a gun no she wasn't at the start this is the thing she was fully clothed just sitting there normally impassive and at the start so anyone could do anything to her and at the start low entropy state and this is human beings for you. Um, mm. She, it was just a case someone kind of went up to her and like touched her hair or kissed her on the cheek. By the third hour, someone had cut all her clothes off her with the scissors. Yeah. By the fourth hour, she was being razor, like her skin was being cut by razor blades. Someone started to drink her blood. You know, someone yeah. held the gun to her head and put her own finger on the trigger. And then a protective faction started to form in the audience. This is, if this isn't a metaphor for Twitter, I don't know what is, you know, <laughs> like, because it's that kind of sense of, Somebody gets super aggressive. People go, the anarchy breaks out. And then a protective faction forms and go, hang on, wait a second. But, but, and at the end, though, the thing is covered in blood, naked, bedraggled, afraid, bug-eyed. She gets up at the end of the six minutes and walks towards the audience. And the audience go, oh, my God, that's a real person. Right. And, and everybody runs away. Like nobody can face her. Nobody can look at her. And I think that's fascinating. Why are we talking about this? I've forgotten. Uh, well, because that's, I think that's both a metaphor for writing in public and um, for yes. being messy in public. Yes, you're right. You're right. Absolutely. It's, I think, but the thing is, the fact that she could do that, she said it felt incredibly liberating at the end to know that she was, but she said afterwards, she said, if they'd murdered me, I wouldn't have stopped them. Mm. You know, and I think that, but that's that kind of embracing your fate embracing your mortality is part of it it's that same drive it's why people bungee jump isn't it it's that sense of i'm going to it's Freud calls it the death drive for thanatos you know embracing that part of yourself that shouldn't be you know so like getting rid of your sense of selfie Uh, zoe zoe's saying that um when you write you should be quote totally bits out oh zoe absolutely but uh i would say but the other thing is that um she got, she, I mean, that was also her public persona and, and that made her extremely famous. So that mm. was her brand. So there's an mm. extra layer to that, uh, allowing that yourself to be, to be publicly opened and excoriated um, wins you points and followers, doesn't it? So I suppose, so. yeah. So I suppose in that case, she makes herself into product, which is very personal, mm. isn't it? 
So, and I suppose therefore we are product, aren't we? We make something. Um, someone's making money of us, aren't they? If we're on Twitter, you know, we're on Twitter for free. We're not paying a Twitter subscription. So somebody somewhere is making money from us. Mm. But we are product. As soon as we tweet, as soon as we sign up, we're product. Um, mm. There's no escaping capitalism, is there? Well, no. I just saw um, the, there was an exhibition I went to in the mid-90s that was, um, oh, God, I can't remember the name of the, I love her too. Anyway, so, but the exhibition at the heart of it was in the Serpentine Gallery, and at the very centre was a big glass case with Tilda Swinton in it, lying oh, yeah. asleep. And, and it was literally Tilda Swinton. Um, so when I walked into the gallery, um, but we everyone had pressed against the sides of the walls. Like, mm. I was basically not breathing because there was this, you know, minor celebrity, but celebrity nonetheless, mm. like lying down wearing Chuck Taylor All-Stars, <laughs> seeming to be asleep in a big glass case. So I walked up to, the, I made myself break, break the tension and walked up to the glass case and sort of looked up her nostrils. But, <laughs> and then everyone did. And it was, it was, the whole exhibition was about our relationship to objects and celebrity and celebrities as objects. And, um, yeah, there, there's something about being a viewer and a participant in that situation that's also deeply unnerving, watching someone else's bits spill out, really. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think when you're writing, I suppose, online, is you are also the audience. As soon as that's published, because what I do is, even though I don't edit, as soon as I've published it, I go back and I read it again, but I read it once it's published, if that makes sense. I, and yeah. I go back and I read it and I imagine I'm somebody else and I kind of, and, and, and it's a really different experience. Like I immediately become reader, like right? mm -hmm. the author dies and then I become reader and, and, and I kind of, and I almost, I'm almost surprised because when I write, because I write in one go, one kind of mad haze, you know, fingers pounding at the keyboard and all that, you know, and I write, re I kind of type really fast because I'm thinking really fast. And then when I read it back slowly and I go, oh my God, did I write that? That's really strange. Almost. I kind of have this kind of come out of that trance. And so, um, it's um i've just seen some of the things coming in on twitter about being naked at the battle of hastings that's gonna that's, <laughs> that was, that's going that was on my killer line there is no way i'm not using that to bits out of the battle of hastings that's uh, absolutely yeah. fine god knows what twitter's going to do to me after this um but um but yeah so no tabra through it's gone again i'm terrible i told you this would happen it's gone no, again. No, i'll tell what you what you were talking about um you yeah. were talking about reading your own work right um, yes which actually i think I, I don't know if zoe's still listening but there's something i do as well so i don't overthink when i'm writing it but then i'll mm. read it again multiple times after I'd written it, yes. Um, as a reader, quite disconnected from from my own writing process, and you're mm. saying you do that too, but as quite a hostile reader, or or what? Um, yeah. Oh, I'm always hostile to myself. That's a big part <laughs> of being. Oh, absolutely. I think I think that's what uh, depression is. It's uh, yeah. It's kind of almost having a separate second self that hates you. You know, it's like having an evil, evil twin, but um, that in kind of supplanted yeah. it. Yeah, that supplanted itself into you rather than being external. It's like an internalized evil twin. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I suppose. But what I actually have found, funnily enough, is, and this is this is why I've gone in the direction I have to go back to that first question, which I do remember, um, is that that voice has started to die down. That voice that goes, "Mate, you suck." That voice, like when I read my post back yesterday. I read it back and went, okay, I'm all right. I like that, actually. Mm -hmm. Like, there were bits of it where I went, hmm, okay, are people going to get that or is that pretentious or whatever? But then I read it back and there were bits of it and I thought, yeah, okay, I think you've said what you wanted to say there. I think, and I, there's, there's this, this, this story, and I'm going to be really vague here, about a Russian dancer. 
Mm. Um, and she danced this, I can't remember who it was, and she danced this incredible modern dance routine. And, uh, and afterwards she was interviewed and the interviewer said, uh, why did you dance that? Can you explain what it was about? And she said, if I could do that, I wouldn't have gone to the great trouble of dancing it. <laughs> right. Yes. Well, that, and that, yeah. Writing about writing is very different to, mm. to writing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, go uh, wait. I wanted to go back to something you were saying, um, or rather, actually, just think about: did did this process happen when you were edgy blogging, when you were writing about things that happen in the classroom? Is there a mm. way in which that's equally naked and um, bits mm. out of the Battle of Hastings in its own way, uh, <laughs> or not? What do you think? I, it was. I think edgy blogging was an excuse to get writing. In mm -hmm. hindsight, in the sense that, so I've always loved writing. I did creative writing with English at university um, and I loved it. And I've always loved writing and self-expression. Even as a kid, I was always wanted to sort of sit in my bedroom and, and write stories. My problem has always been attention. So if I can't do it in one go, I just forget that I started it. Mm -hmm. And I have got so many like Word documents that have got like a few sentences and I've gone off to like have a sandwich and I've just forgotten. So I... Um, so, so I think what I did is I thought, right, I just got to a point where I went, I need to, I want to write and I, I want to write online. And I want people to read my work, but what the hell do I write about? And I remember um, I, I, I watch um, Ali Abdal on, um, on YouTube and he says like, productivity and stuff. And it's really helped me with my disorganization. And, um, and he said, just document, don't create things, just document what you're doing. And he mm -hmm. said, ask yourself, could this be useful to one other person? If so, post it. And so all I'd do is I'd do something in a lesson and thought, oh, that worked pretty well with year nine, actually. And so I'd just blog about it. And I just thought, and then people would say, oh, thanks, Alex, that was useful. And then I would share some resources and people go, thanks, Alex, that was useful. So, and, and what it did, I think, is edgy blogging gave me the courage to do the writing that I really wanted to do, which is whatever hell this is now. Um, <laughs> and I don't so much think edgy blogging is dead, but I think that I would like to see it change. I think I would like to see edgy bloggers not feel like they had to have to conform to a rigid archetype, because mm -hmm. I think that's what a lot when I read a lot of edgy blogs, I'm thinking these are clearly really smart people. But they all the ones I love are the ones that have got a really peppy sort of verve to them. They've got a real individual voice. I mm. can't read nonfiction if it's dry, no matter how interesting the subject matter is. Like, I need a joke. I tweeted a little while ago and people got really angry with me that I thought educational research was boring. Um, <laughs> and I just said, I said, guys, I, and I tweeted out, I said, guys, stop pretending that educational research is interesting. Okay, uh -huh. stop, stop pretending that, no, I said, stop pretending that it's fun. And like loads of people got back to me and like, like Jonathan we Reb do think it's fun. Got back yeah. to me. They go, we do think it's fun. I do this for fun. And I was like, my problem actually isn't the material, it's the fact there's no jokes. So I was like, guys, throw in a joke once in a while, man. Throw in a metaphor, you know, make it interesting just because, just because the subject matter is dry, doesn't mean you can't tell it in an interesting way. And for me, it's always been about the authorial voice. Like mm -hmm. I remember when I was at uni, first two years of doing creative writing, I just copied the writers I was reading. So the first year I was into Brace and Ellis, like an absolute poser. And I just would write everything like subpar, Brett Easton Ellis choked Paul in it. Oh, I got really into Brett. Saul Bellow. I got really into Saul Bellow into the oh, second God, year. You're like, that kind yeah. of boy. Ugh, yeah, the white boy. I bet you did, you did a Thomas Pynchon as well, right? You're oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I read, when, when I read Gravity's Rainbow. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. All the postmodernists. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Like, if, uh, they're white, if they're white and angry. So terrible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's only like, and I had to break out of that and I had to do that pantomime. And that's thing, my writing's so far away from that now, but that's all part of who I am still, so I don't regret it. But I look back and think, you absolute poser. My Hemingway phase, I don't even like no, fish. No, I think, you, you know, know, if you're, if you're going to do, 
if you are a white boy who writes, then, then mm. it's necessary to, yeah. to evacuate the category of, of um, tortured postmodern white boy because that's where you find yeah. yourself. Especially, yeah, yeah, go on, go on. Actually, I'll go back to Sarah's. Carry on with what you were saying. And I was going to say, especially when you kind of, you grow up in, you know, a subpar Northamptonshire town, you have no real cultural mm. experiences. So I was the first person in my family to go to uni. Um, I, I kind of grew up culturally sort of, I say culturally bereft, and, and I don't mean that's not right. What I mean is I, I grew up really away from art and um, mm. and theatre and all the stuff I'm into now is what I'm saying and, and literature. And we did have books, but my parents, um, you know, my dad is very proudly, he's, he's never read a book. Um, uh-huh. He's just, he's a very sort of, um, I come from a sort of family that's kind of salt of the earth, honest, crack on, do your work, come home sort of thing. And, and I just kind of, I don't know how, but I got into books. I don't even know mm. how. And so I, I had to go through that pantomime because I had to discover it all for myself, I suppose. I had and to. I, yeah, and I think that you were writing about performance yes. in that, that beautiful blog yesterday. Yes. And that, yeah, performative masculinity. There's that, how do, how do I be a middle-class man who writes? <laughs> well, here are some middle-class men who write. Do I want to be in the Florida Keys with, with my hats? <laughs> I'm like, oh, God, did you go through a, a what's-it phase, Bukowski phase? No, I never really got I on with Bukowski. He was too Good. grumpy. He, he just, it just seemed. Yeah. He, do you know what? I think the thing is with Bukowski is he's so nihilistic. And I found with him, like, I need hope. And I like, I like, yeah. so I went for a David Foster Wallace phase. And, and I still, yeah. and obviously, and I remember going, oh, guys, I've read Infinite Jest and I don't get the maths <laughs> at all. But, you know, but I remember reading, but I remember the thing I loved and still love about David Foster Wallace is he talked about his inner sap. He said that he would he would he would write about raw, naked human emotion yeah. and love. And at times he would always feel he was being so cliche. But those were the bits I loved, you know, when he was so yeah. nakedly raw. And he wrote a piece called The Depressed Person, which really resonated with me. Mm-hmm. And like for all of his ridiculous, almost cliche postmodern hyperbole, um, there's some parts of Foster Wallace that really stayed with me. You know, the, the bravery of writing about naked human emotion and beauty. Yeah. Um, oh, you mean uh, having your bits out at the Battle of Hastings, I think. Absolutely, yeah. Tabitha. I shall put that in my bio. <laughs> you have to now. Uh, what Sarah to. said, and I think this is really important, um, is that it's possible to get a lot of joy out of writing without there needing to be an end game of having it read by someone else. Would you write if no one was reading? Yes, I would. I would. I think ultimately I do write for me. I love that people read it, actually. I mean, look, it's, I'm not going to lie. It's a tremendous balm for the ego, especially when you're somebody who kind of tends to bruise oneself. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's a tremendous thing to, to kind of to see some of the, I woke up this morning and seen some of the comments like, like Tom Sherrington, for example, read it. Like, oh, my I God, like, he said you were the future of blogging or I something. Know, like, I know. I read that and I thought, I was like, oh, yeah. my God, like, what the hell is going on here? Like, uh, it's just, it's, it was mad to read that. And I was just like, I don't know how to take that. It's just, just a bloke writing stuff in my room. Like, but, but like, no, go back. What was the question again? Right. <laughs> um, well, someone. Oh, right. That, yes. That yes. Yes. Said, like, write like no one is reading. Dance. Yeah. Like I think no one I is watching. Do you know? Yeah. I think I would. I think I would. Yeah. I'd like, and I think I have done. Most of my writing has never seen the light of day, um, especially yeah. fiction, especially my fiction. And fiction's way scarier, actually. I would say I, I find it way scarier to have somebody read something that's fiction. And I think I'm actually gradually edging towards that with more creative nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Like um, I have got some fiction on my blog, and nobody cares. Um, but like. Um, <laughs> But fiction's harder, I think, because you've got to construct so much more. You know, you've yeah. really got to think more about narrative voice and character. You've got to, like, make stuff up. You know, whereas narrative nonfiction, it all just comes from me. 
there's there's mm. less there's fewer steps I've got to I've got to make. Would you um so so two of the well there's been several recurring or um things you've been experimenting with central mm. motifs and figures metaphors mm. um at the heart of your recent writing um so I wondered and obviously I am um, I've spammed things your way and I know um I broke your brain by making you read Donna Haraway I love <laughs> Donna Haraway so would would you say rhizomes are more attracted to you would you say cyborgs and let's talk about cyborgs why cyborgs. Well, I've always loved the idea of augmenting myself. So I hate sleep. I think sleep is stupid and it's a waste of time because, oh, well, A, I, I struggle with it. I have a really bad relationship with sleep. Because I, mm-hmm. I, the moment I go to sleep, I wrote a piece called Night About This. As soon as I close my eyes, my brain goes, hey, let's replay bits of your life. Let's let's play. <laughs> this is, It's like this is your life, but like this is the worst parts of your life. Mm. So like Michael Aspel comes on and goes, hey, remember that bad thing that happened? That I'm one line to you. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that time you embarrassed yourself yesterday? Let's do that. Remember that time when you were nine? You know, so so like it does that or, or like I'll end up thinking about some some bizarre chain of things. And so I have a poor relationship with sleep. Um, and so I would just I'd like to get rid of it. Like I would spend all night writing and creating and thinking, you know, I have a two year old, so I don't have a lot of free time. And um and so I'd love to get rid of sleep and just kind of have those extra hours. I'd love to kind of biohack myself not to need to eat because, again, that gets in the way. And, um, you know, food is food could be really bad for you. I, I just I don't know. I maybe live a bit longer. Um, uh-huh. I'd like to be able to turn the ADHD off, I suppose, uh-huh. just occasionally just kind of slow things down. I'd like to slow down time. I'd like to be able yeah. to read thoughts. But anyway, I like the idea <laughs> of cyborgs because I think it's the next stage of humanity. I, think, I was talking to my friend Tom about this uh, yesterday. And, um, and I said that I think if we, I think now we can't live without our digital selves, our digital lives, uh-huh. our networks. If we turned off digital technology now, all of the computers and everything went, our world would collapse, our civilization would collapse. You know, we wouldn't be able to do anything. And so we are cyborgs already. I think that's the key thing. We are augmented by technology already. And I think I think Twitter is the cyborg make manifest in that that's the digital part of ourself. But I don't know if we could take that part of ourselves away now. Our online presence, I think it's too embedded in who we are. And uh, I think um, sometimes we forget which part's which. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, that chap there is saying, so now we're with William Gibson. Because, of yeah. course, the, I mean, Donna Haraway's cyborg manifesto is, what, 85 um mm-hmm. i i was i was teaching cyborg theory probably when you were a small child i don't know how much younger you are than me I'm i was very born old. in 87 okay yeah you were you were 10 when i was teaching cyborg Goodness theory me. But, um, <laughs> but i remember I, I i my first lesson i discussed um you know how we how we enhance ourselves with technology what where the lines are about technology and humanity if we co-evolve with our technologies and i asked all my undergraduates it was um university of pennsylvania and I asked them to go and reflect on it and write why they were a cyborg. And this is directly relevant to you, by the way. So one of the students handed me in something that I seared its way into my soul because it was so complicated and beautiful. He said, I am not myself without my Ritalin. So wow. his self is the augmented self that controls his ADHD. Mm. And and without that, he is not his true self. Wow. Which, yeah, does transhumanism it's what's for dinner but that's mad isn't it because Mm. then you're almost saying that you need to in order to be yourself you need something to be a part of you that wasn't yourself originally um and as in therefore there was no complete self without this it's it's mad it's mad exactly it it denies origin stories which is of course donna haraway's whole thing is that the cyborg theory allows you to step out of the idea of, of some kind of like original status eden that you're 
yes, absolutely. That's why I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Mm. And I thank you again for recommending it to me. And I, uh, it, that's the thing. When you, people recommend things to me, I will, I will read them and I will kind of chew them up and they will become something eventually, sooner or later. They will become... Because I, I, I think this is the other thing, actually. I'm just going to go on a brief tangent. Part of the writing process is having good inputs. Um, it, part, a big part of it is there's got to be quality stuff coming in. When I find that I can't write, it's usually because I've got no good stuff coming in. I'm not reading or watching things that are, right. that are, that are um, giving me grist to the mill, as it were. So I have to, um, I have to have lots of good things coming in, and that's that. And I would say, if someone's struggling to write, you got to read. You got to read and think about what you read. Mm-hmm. People are saying, um, like, that I think keying into what we've just said, but also what you were talking about with this kind of like public bits out self on Twitter and allowing yourself to be torn apart and. You know that, and that we couldn't separate ourselves from our extended technological personalities. Um, that it's like a perpetual Truman Show. That it's like <laughs> mirror. But what I found fascinating about edu Twitter and edu blogging and such is that really it's only a tiny percentage of us who are engaged in that. Most teachers don't mm. live largely online. Um, you know, yeah. well, they, they might live online in their own way. Obviously, we all do, but not this particular matrix that we are in. Um, yeah. Are, are you happy to be in this matrix? Do you think it's oh, unhealthy? Increasingly, yes. I mean, I was at the start, to be honest with you. I mean, look, I mean, I've gone from being a guy who kind of just followed a few accounts mutely um, and then gradually started blogging, showing resources. And I've now got sort of 2,200 followers. So it's not a huge amount, but it's it's more than I don't know, it's more than average, I don't really know. But but like so and then the more but the more that happens, the followers are nice because it means I connect with more people. Because the more that the more people follow me, the more they reply to me, and then I can talk to them and I follow them. So there's a lovely kind of mutual sense of that expanding Twitter rhizome. Um and I yeah, I really, really love the corner I've cultivated. It feels starting to feel like home. And I think that that's uh, really nice. It brings me comfort. Um, if there's lots and lots of nastiness, I kind of look over it and I go, okay, that's happening over there. Maybe I'll get involved. I probably won't. I will probably sit in my little corner talking nonsense with, uh, with the people I like. And, and that, for me, is, is, is wonderful. Um, it's become an extension of myself, I think. Uh, what Matt is saying is that, um, in their experience, more teachers read blogs than engage with Twitter. So, mm. so if we are all involved in this big virtual bubble, then, um, then yeah, that's that's a bubble that 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 still with the blogs reaches out mm. has impact far beyond itself. Which, um, after you've gone to teach because you work on Mondays like a sap, I'll be talking about the history <laughs> of educational blogging. Uh, Matt's saying I've had my blogs referenced back to me by colleagues mm. who aren't even aware of Edu Twitter. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, really and it does point. feel like main characters like the main characters from my virtual life sometimes come up in school and I'm like but wait I know all about that person do you know what they said to blah blah blah, blah. So, yeah. that's a really good point yeah. it's really strange isn't it because you're right when you say characters mm. because I, I, it's strange because we are I think we are characters I um, I sometimes talk about myself as the, well we're all the main characters in our own lives oh, yeah. I we're think to be honest with you yeah, yeah. and that's the problem isn't it is you imagine a no, uh, imagine a novel where everyone's the main character maybe <laughs> I need to write that maybe that's no, um, Kurt Vonnegut did that Kurt Vonnegut oh, one did, of his yeah, novels, yeah, I can't yeah. remember which one he says at the beginning um, I'm going to treat every character as equally as important as every other oh, character right. so I've when people that walk past getting something at the supermarket he gives you their entire inner life and backstory <laughs> and stuff uh, well, that's Vonnegut for you, isn't it? I've only read a couple of Vonnegut's actually. I've Slaughterhouse Five and Breakfast of Champions, I think I read. Um, 
But yes. Um, all right. I'll have, which one was it? Which which one were you referencing? I can't remember which one. I can't, I'll find I've out. I'll them. find out. Yeah. But I, I definitely need to read that. Right. Um, yeah. Um, and I think that, yeah. Okay. And actually, um, I will uh, concur with Matt because I was reading um, a few blogs in the early stages of my teaching before I even dared go anywhere near Edge of Twitter. So I think he's mm. absolutely right. Um, and then I realized it's re- it was really strange kind of um, seeing these bloggers like chris curtis being the main one actually that he was a big big figure for me um seeing mm. him be a real person and it's uh, it was very very odd yeah yeah no completely um sorry i'm just dealing with cats here excited that's oh, fine cats, I'm cats in the car. And everything <laughs> <laughs> uh let us let's because you haven't run away uh mm-hmm. let's just go to i'm gonna go to a comment on zoe's blog um this is Casey talking about the decline of Casey's case, but talking about the decline of readership. Um, now, Matt, who is online with us, um, obviously has been singled out recently as having incredibly useful blogs. Um, and I think Matt's very much are in the mode of here is why we do things in the classroom, questioning, really good one about questioning and explanations recently. Um, mm. But what Casey's casebook is saying is that they've had more views, visits, and likes, but far fewer comments in the last few years. So maybe people mm. have less time. Um, maybe they're really seeing these blogs as instrumental, essentially free, very useful content that they can take to, you know, redesign their teaching, but it's not a conversation anymore. And that that's what Zoe's blog about blogging mm. was, was largely about, is that not just bits out blogging, but also bits out blogging where you are responding and you're thinking and you're forming and it shapes the way you think and respond. Um, do you find you weren't getting much engagement with the sort of here's what I do in the classroom stuff? Uh, I was getting bits and pieces, not, uh, not loads and loads and loads. What I found, and I spoke to one of my ex-colleagues about this, is what I found is, is the more um, that there was that someone could actually take away as in, mm-hmm. so say, for example, if there was a resource or something someone could print off or like basically copy to use in the classroom, those are the ones that got the most likes. To, to this day, those, if I go on to my analytics, those are the ones that, that stand out. And actually, the ones that were the least popular were the ones that were more meditative because they're the ones we go, oh, yeah, a bloke's thinking. Brilliant. There we go. Well, yeah. That's what we need. Another middle class white guy thinking. <laughs> that's what we need. Um, whereas um, the ones that were much more practical, they were really uh-huh. popular. Um, and yeah, that's what I found. And it's funny because going into the kind of the newer style of things, I would say that until this last one, actually, which I think I, I don't know how many views it's got, but it seems to be quite popular. Um, the readership got more niche, but they but people commented way more. And when I say commented, commented on, on Twitter rather than on the blog itself. But people were saying way more about it to me in a way that was more meaningful i would say rather than just thank you this is useful and that's what i used to get quite a lot on twitter it's like thank you for this thank you i read this thank you whereas now it's people actually quoting lines back to me and going this meant this and people having conversation about right, what so it meant to them i think um yeah like adam adam wrote a beautiful thread yesterday adam boxer uh yes friend of the sarcastic friend of the show and occasional <laughs> radio show himself um and he was saying and this is something I was talking about before you joined in, that there was a golden age 
as it were, of edgy blogging, mm. where yes, I read this thread. People were questioning everything about the profession, particularly the sort of discovery learning that was in vogue, um, and an awful lot of practices as well as Ofsted practices. And so there were huge questions about the philosophy of education being asked at that point. Um, they made it all the way into the Secretary of State for Education's speeches. Um, all of those people, many of those people, have now gone on to become, you know, installed in sort of government positions or important think tank positions yes. themselves. But that the conversation, the blog conversation, is no longer taking place about those enormous areas. It is much more, as Matt and you are saying, um, about instrumental, discipline-specific, situation-specific, context-specific, mm. in practice things happening um and that do you find yourself do you wish you'd been there at the golden age um where you have no i'm not clever enough um (laughs) (laughs) no um no i get really and the other thing is as well is that again and this is not to say it is boring but it bores me i get really bored it's one of the reasons i don't really read the news very much not because i don't care but because i don't care it's it's because it's it's because well, it's either it's 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 not very interesting to read. To be honest with you, you know, there's not there's no there are no jokes, there are no metaphors, and um, you know, there's nothing clever going on. It's just sad. It's just sadness. It's just like really badly written sadness, and I don't want to do that. I, I I wouldn't choose to read badly written sadness, and so and so yeah, I stay away from these sorts of things. Uh, and I just think, look, there are people who really care about this, and there are people who really are knowledgeable about this, and it's like I wouldn't want to be a fraud. I wouldn't want to step into that arena and go. Oh yeah. Um, here's my view on educational policy reform about X, Y, or Z because I just don't know enough, and and I and I also think that's really important as well is is just acknowledging what you don't know, like not trying to be an expert on everything. I think that's so important. You know, I'm I've got my little niche, and I'm going to write in my little niche, um, and maybe that will get wider the more I learn and grow, and it hopefully will as I learn. But I I don't like the idea of those kind of borrowed robes. So so no, I don't think I do. I'm I'm. I really respect people that have the time and mm. the uh, the inclination to deal with that sort of thing. But no, uh, God knows I don't have the attention span. Um, let's I was just think about your other metaphors. Tell us about um, the rhizome thing, because I think we've thrown that word around several times, yeah. but um, that needs some explaining. Um, yeah, and it's a really useful word. Carry on. Tell, so let's tell. think about let's think about it as a rejection of the tree like hierarchies where because because tree-like hierarchies imply binaries or at least mutual exclusivity so if you have a branch and then it forks off into two other branches you've got a you you can only be on one branch or the other you can't be on both branches simultaneously mm-hmm. so the rhizome's great though because you can connect anything at any point to anything and it's all about multiplicity and this is kind of how i think and this is how my kind of note taking works is it's this kind of web which has the potential to be, if not infinite, then something very close to it, if you can be close to infinity. Um, it, and so it's the idea that if we can get rid of a hierarchy, if we can get rid of hierarchies and just focus on being and oneness, then we can have much more meaningful conversations. We, we, we're so, we're so um, obsessed with taxonomies as human beings, of ordering of this goes above this because, you know, it's the scala natura, isn't it? The great chain of being. Yeah. We've been obsessed with it, always obsessed with it. And I actually think that um, that modern thought, you know, our contemporary thought needs to break away from that. You know, um, we need to have a life kind of post-binary almost where we just accept that it's not about either or or better, worse. It is about is and also is and also is, you know. We don't have to think in hierarchies anymore. I'm not sure how useful hierarchies are. They only ever seem to perpetuate sadness. 
So I just, uh, just to clarify a little bit, Matt in characteristic uh, snorting style says, sounds like anarchy. <laughs> and uh, and um... for Matt specifically, when I'm thinking about the, the rhizome, I mean, essentially, because just to, to be really specific, um, is an intellectual tradition, kind of Deleuze and Guattari, 10,000 plateaus, mm. that takes the rhizome, which is essentially, rather than plants which are completely standalone, individual, indiv- individuated things, organic yes. organisms. The rhizome is is a model of, you know, a living model that is all connected. So it's all one mm. thing, but that expresses itself in multiple individual instances. So you're saying, I'm thinking about your thinking and your blogging and um, as a metaphor indeed for, for the profession and for the online iteration of the profession is that mm. we're, we are all part of one body, as uh, the inspector says. In oh, don't. <laughs> <laughs> he always comes up, doesn't he, J.B. Priestley? He always finds yeah. a way, doesn't he? Damn, <laughs> damn his eyes. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I, I think, yes, I suppose it does sound like anarchy. Um, and to be honest with you, it might be that it's idealistic. I don't really know anything. I... Um, I, 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 I'm very, very ignorant on lots and lots of things. And, and the rhizome is, is something I think, Tabitha, that you shared with me literally the other day that I yeah. almost kind of stumbled across by happy accident yeah, while I was writing about mushrooms. Yourself, and I'm like, hey, yeah, you should really read Deleuze really and Guattari. Yeah. Well, I, well, I have started to. I have, I have started to. It's going to be slow going because it's mad. Well, but, um, but I have started Speaking about to. anarchy, I think it says in the introduction that you, you're not supposed to read it in order. You should read it however you like. <laughs> like <don't>, <laughs> throw <laughs> it at the wall. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I think, and that's the thing. I, I think anarchy, I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to comment on politics because I'm really bad at it. But um, I, I, part of me loves the idea of anarchy. I think my brain's quite anarchic. But I suppose maybe I and people like me need people who aren't anarchic, people who are super organized, people like, you know, Andy Codextrous, who yeah. um, who can put things into neat little categories and go, that goes there, that goes there, behave yourself, that goes there, that goes there. Yeah. Whereas I'm like, oh my God, children, what the hell is happening? You know? Um, <laughs> yeah, Andy, Andy, as I tell him frequently and affectionately, is sort of the anti-me. He's a, yeah, oh, he's he? a machinery yes. of order and and yeah weaponized you're like jesus order. and lucifer of twitter aren't you it's that kind <laughs> of but 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 you know it's it's but it's a wonderful thing because we need both we need both i i think i'm more like you but have pretended to be andy on occasion i mm. think i'm but i i think i kind of flit somewhere in the middle kind of um zipping around like a broken spirit level um <laughs> i but I think yeah. I think to to kind of like pull this back to yes. what we were thematically talking about there's you're carving out a space wherein blogs can be chaotic. Yes. Like let's let's have edgy blogs that are pure chaos, that are bits out, things forming themselves. I mean, they're not pure chaos. It's very beautifully written, your blogs. Thank you. But, Thank but you, you know what I mean? They're more, they come from a more chaotic place yes, than a, a centralised order. Um, and then still have, you know, those types of blogs, which are highly instrumentalised, mm. are profoundly useful. Everyone needs Andy's blogs. Everyone needs Matt's blogs. You know, everyone mm. needs to, to get their ideas. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, blogs now serve a function that the Times Ed Times used to, you know, like mm. when you, I, I haven't got that sort of like pulling a quick scheme of work off the Times. You can't yes. do that anymore. It's all, it's all monetized and ripping oh, off other yes, people. So and now terrible. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and god awful as well, isn't it? Like well, somehow they're paying you for we're going to pay for things, but they're worse. Oh, I remember <laughs> downloading something once when I was a, a cover teacher back in two thousand and nine, <laughs> and and the whole thing was in papyrus. 
And I was like, you just... <laughs> I've that... downloaded that before. Oh, that papyrus. was the point. I oh, know, papyrus font. Like, only a literal monster would put something in papyrus font. Uh, it is even worse than Comic Sans. I was going to say, it's Comic Sans for sociopaths, isn't it? It's... <laughs> Oh my um, goodness me! But it seemed like a metaphor for um, the limits or uh, of uh, yes. easily downloadable resources and and mm. personalize them and be chaotic yourself. All yes. right. Um, you told me you were going to talk talk. You only had half an hour, and you've actually stayed on the phone. <laughs> yeah, I'll minutes. have to go in a few minutes. I think. Um, I, I this is this is this is par for the course. My lessons frequently overrun, and I never really know what's going on. <laughs> to be honest with you, and once I start talking, and I told you, and I did say to you that I would go off on tangents and forget what the question was. And I think I've done that at least eight times. No, so yeah, do we? Yeah. Do you want to wrap up? Uh, no, not at all. If you're willing to keep sitting in the car, I'll carry on. Um, I was going to read you something at the end of Zoe's blog about blogs and, and just do. ask for some response. So she yes. says, and this is, I think, what Matt was saying about the interaction of Edu Twitter versus blogs. Um, that mm. She's suggesting here, I think, that Edu Twitter has an odd impact on the blogging output. My worry then is. I suppose, is perhaps we've fallen down a bit of a rabbit hole, a rabbit hole paved with references to original sin, debates on hugging 17-year-olds, and whether one group has been silenced and or is silencing another. Maybe at the end of a long day, term or year, that is what people want to engage with, not whether we are asking the right questions about poetry or if modelling is being done the right way in our classrooms. I guess there's nothing wrong with that, but I'll continue to share blogs, my own and others, and engage in the conversations about the ins and outs of schools and teaching and the students' lives, as that's what really matters to me. Do you think that we we are too distracted by the latest fight? Um, our blogs. Um, mm, that's a really good question, Tabitha. Um, I think too distracted. I think we are distracted, um, but I think it's because I think we're sad. And I think a lot of a lot of what we do comes back to different flavors of sadness. And so I think when what we want to do is we want to, um, you know, better ourselves, we can better the lives of our students, etc. But we're so tired and sad. And mm. we and so when a fight breaks out and we've got that last reserve of energy just depleting, like when your phone's about to die and you see that fight and you go, I'm just going to sit here, I'm just going to lie here and I'm just going to watch this burn. <laughs> Right. Because I could put the effort into, you know, the latest and greatest advancements in teaching Chaucer. Right. But that involves really using my brain and my brain is tired. And this happened this week and someone shouted at me and a parent was angry yeah. and the two year olds on fire, you know, and so on. And so you go, right, I'm just going to watch this play out. And oh, look, here's a person who's not a real person because they're a photo of a um, of a head from a um, well-received um, London school. Um, uh -huh. Let's have a pop. Let's have a look at that and let's all grab onto this. And everyone else is doing it. And this is the thing. Everyone else is doing it. Everyone mm. else is, is watching. I'm going to go over to that fire. And why would I go over to that fire? Because fires are warm. Mm. So... I'm going to warm myself in the glow of this fire where everyone's kind of taken little bits of themselves and bits of others and throw them on the fire. And I think if we're going to spin it positively, and I'd like to, because I always think that one of the things I do at the end of my blog posts is there's a glimmer of hope, even if they're really sad. And I think that I think what it points to is that people want to come together. They're just human. So they're not always very good at the how. 
But I think the intention is always to fend off that that particular isolated sadness that a lot of us carry. We all carry around with us, you know. And I think that that's why we do get involved in the fights. Now, a, a lot of us are British, so we're never going to admit that, you know. But I think that that's that's what it is. I think that we, is that sadness, and I think we're trying to trying to keep ourselves going. Um, in that way. Now, that might be complete nonsense from a psychological point of view, but that's what I think. Right. And I think um, Toby's just saying that that's, well, two things. Zoe says bubblegum for the brain, no flavour, but something to chew, which mm. is, is absolutely true. Um, but Toby says it's interdependence, nature, Humboldt, mm. very of its time versus Linnaean segregation taxonomy. There is a way in which when, when we all pile on, when we all react, we are acting in, interdependently. Um, mm. That's when we are most rhizomatic, potentially. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is a bit sobering. It is. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. The rhizome definitely has its, has, its, um, has its drawbacks. And it's something that I'm still kind of thinking about. And do you know what? Even if I figured um, humanity out, let's say I did that, no one would notice anyway, to be honest with you. And I'd probably <laughs> die, um, you know, unheeded. For all we know, to be honest with you, we've got a theory of everything. It's just that no one paid any attention. <laughs> or, or then we could get um, Matt or someone much more logical to put put out instrumentalized blogs about how the universe works, and then absolutely, uh, I, uh, I think he'd be great at that. And I would just, I would just love to see. Going back to blogs, I, I, I want to read more blogs. Actually, to be honest with you, I'm pretty terrible actually at reading, teaching blogs recently. I used to read loads and loads and loads, but I would love to see more bloggers, more edgy bloggers experiment. I'm not saying in the way that I'm doing it, but just you know, occasionally, just like. Throw out something more personal. Throw out something that's a bit weird. Hey, I wrote this. What do you think? Because I think that, that that's how new writers are born. And I think we've got some tremendous writing voices on, uh, on, on mm. Twitter. Um, I mean, I, I'd love to see more of that. I, I think, um, you know, I think Matt very much making the point here again that they are still edgy blogging and edgy blogging oh, yeah. still very much matters. Um, but I think what you're pointing to is a really fascinating thing where that some edgy bloggers are pouring their energy into something they don't actually love. Not Matt, obviously. Matt. Oh, no, he loves it. No, yeah, that's yeah. very much. Yeah. <laughs> but like someone like you. <laughs> she loves, you they love it too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think everybody's going to be, everyone's going to do what they do and everyone is going to work within the limitations of an increasingly challenging life and an increasingly challenging world. I think um, I think sometimes it all goes a little bit, and I'm going to wrap up actually because I, I will have a staff briefing like really soon. I've just realised, um, but then I'll get told off. But um, but I think um, Tennessee Williams um, in his um, interview with himself, "The World I Live In," which is at the end of uh, Streetcar Named Desire, he talked about the screaming, crying need to be understood. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's what this is all about, whether it's about edgy blogging, whether it's my style of blogging, whether it's writing or poetry or art or Twitter or having a go at uh, somebody um on twitter it's all about that screaming need to be this to, to be understood i think that's what we want we we're go we, we twitter is a void and we scream into it going please understand me please understand me i'm putting i'm just help and some mm -hmm. people i'm always struck by these tweets and uh and i sometimes have a bit of a cynical voice where people go i'm having a really bad day please dm me you know sort of thing or i'm feeling depressed and i sometimes see those and go and go oh what a ploy for attention but i don't think they are i think they're all genuine in one way or another well, there, i think that there's mm. nothing where we all need attention Right? We do. We yeah. do. We all need, we all do. It's not always, not always the type of attention that we 
think we need but we do i think we all it's, 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 it comes back i think it all comes back to love really to be honest with you i think writing can be an act of love reading can be an act of love because what it ultimately is is a connection between reader and writer and therefore a connection human to human and i think that um if twitter gives us that human warmth of connection it, it, however imperfect and mad and anarchic and human it is i think it can only be a good thing that's um now I <laughs> you are verging on becoming a guru at this point. Oh no, I don't think. no, please don't. I don't know anything, Tabitha. Please. We I've just memeing your, just... your words there. All we need oh, is my love. God. Uh, love oh, and here we go. Play me out with voting. McCartney. Yeah. <laughs> goodness me. Right, go away. And uh, otherwise you'll miss your briefing. <laughs> So yes. it was wonderful having you on. Thank oh, you so much. Oh, absolutely. I'll come on again. That was fantastic. Please it was do. really lovely to hear you. I, I, your voice is exactly what I imagined it would be. So many people have said that, and I don't know what that means. They also oh, say um, I, you can hear the chain smoking. So, yeah. Oh, as an ex-smoker, <laughs> can relate. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank and, you, Tabitha. Um, yeah. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Right now, Alex will be disconnecting and Alex has magically disconnected. Right. I wanted to, um, first off, a message from our sponsor, but then I'm going to go back to a little bit of the history of the educational present with blogs. So uh, one of the sponsors of this show is Oxford University Press. If you need support with your phonics teaching, Oxford University Press now has three Department of Education validated programs to help you. Read, write, incorporated phonics, floppies phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. To find out more about these programs and receive support from your OUP expert local educational consultant, visit www.oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. That's www.oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Matt, <laughs> I very nearly laughed in the middle of my beautiful reading of that uh, message from our sponsors because Matt has contributed what my voice sounds like, middle class and gravelly. I like it. I, I can live with that. Right. Before Alex joined us for that um, gorgeous hour of chaos and thinking on the ground, we I was briefly walking you through um, what has happened with blogs and why they have been so important to our particular educational moment over the last 10, 15 years. Um, Zoe and so yesterday started a conversation on Twitter about um, the TES forums, which had a similar role in people being able to talk outside the profession, outside the classroom. I think what Alex was talking about there about loneliness, enormously important um, when it comes to thinking about ourselves as professionals, because so much of what we do is completely isolated. There is so little feedback. There is so little time to reflect. You really are just fighting fire after fire after fire, class after class after class, and having a space in which to articulate and think about it. Um, was quite transformative for everyone. So where we were, I was taking us to the 25th of April, 2012, with uh, Michael Gove giving a speech on the future of education um, in which he enshrined the importance of the education blogosphere. Uh, old Andrew, which of course is a pseudonym, um, said that day in his blog, well, there you go. The rumours are true. The Secretary of State for Education reads this crap and has told everyone about it. And Sam Friedman, um, reflecting on it the next morning, said, I think it's exciting that for the first time ever, 
any teacher anywhere can sit down and write something that could shift national policy. And it really was shifting national policy. So where are they now, the people who were mentioned in Michael Gove's speech? Uh, Mark Lehane came up repeatedly. He left teaching last year to concentrate on his um, sort of culture politics project. And now, of course, he's just been appointed a special advisor for the new Secretary of State for Education. Uh, Robert Peel, uh, who was already working for Civitas when Michael Gove mentioned him, um, went on to write Progressively Worse, The Burden of Bad Ideas in British Schools in 2014, then went to the Department for Education under Nick Gibb as a teacher in residence. Uh, Tom Bennett came up repeatedly. And of course, Tom Bennett is now a shining czar. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Welcome to my joke. Uh, and so what happened to the golden age of edgy blogging? Well, one thing that happened is that many of the bloggers grew up and became the government. So far from being a scrappy insurgency, now they were, you know, the empire. Which is not to say they were evil at all whatsoever. Just that it's a very different energy from being people kicking against the bricks railing against the status quo, being a lone voice crying in the wilderness, to suddenly not not being a lone voice crying in the wilderness, but be the, the voice at the heart of government. So an enormous amount of what drove the um, golden age of educational blogging was a fight that has been settled, really. There are skirmishes still, but at this point, there are not really people seriously saying that how about what we should do in the classroom is, is have theories of um, you know multiple intelligences, or uh, make sure you have 15 different activities happening in a carousel. And we've all of that stuff we have now recognized is nonsense. Direct instruction to a greater or lesser extent has been recognized as a good thing. We've all understood how we argue about it. I argue about it a lot, but the, the basic insights of cognitive science have found their way into practice, into training, into all of those things. Uh, <laughs> so he is saying, nicely navigated, Rila Hain. Yeah. I'm um, I'm trying to be good. And Matt is saying, have you seen ITT Twitter? Yes, Matt, there is. I do agree that I'm, I tend to be very smug in saying, no, the battle's over, that it's moved on. But that's, it's again, very discipline specific. And I know Adam's, Adam said to me before, no, 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 you have no idea some of the stuff that's still happening in science education. Um, discovery learning is still in a way that it just isn't in some other subjects is still very much kicking and screaming in, in science classrooms. Um, so I'm looking, looking again, uh, uh, going back to, I think I mentioned it, Adam Boxer, who I just mentioned, wrote a beautiful thread yesterday on his theory of what's happening. Um, yeah, Zoe says outside of Twitter, it's interesting. Again, we do, we do live in a bubble where, where we are all very, very aware of the latest trends in education. And that isn't necessarily the case outside of Twitter in the alleged real world. But yeah, so what Adam's, Adam's kind of, you know, architecture of what he thinks happened is that there was a golden age of edu blogging which i think was like 2013 to 17 um some people listening now zoe part of that some absolute belters and it was a process of change people were changing their minds about stuff and blogging about it live so i think that goes to alex's idea of of um having your having your bits out of the battle of hastings that was happening with the basic theory of education the philosophies of education and um, what we do in the classroom so many people who um who i now read or who are, who are very kind of famous on edu twitter and, and influential teachers went through a process where um you know adams described it claire stoneman's described it um 
Stuart Locks described it, where they were fully signed up and committed to discovery learning, um, really, truly believed in it, and then went through a sort of Damascene moment of conversion, saw on the road to educational Damascus, where they realized what they were doing was wrong, and it was happening live. It was being externalized, that mess, that experiment, that moving from one set of um, golden calves to recognizing that maybe all of those calves were wrong. That all happened live, um, which was, I imagine, a thrilling thing to take part in. Um, so a lot of the blogs Adam Sersey read around that time were exploratory and tentative, but um, a lot of them were polemical. Why discovery learning is crap, why assessment for learning might be wrong, why marking sucks, why Rosenshine is epic. Um, and those blogs were very big picture and not subject specific. They were about general theories, the importance of knowledge over skills, experts and novices, retrieval practices, behavior not being your fault, etc. And a lot of those blogs got massive traction. Um, I'll link you to that thread because he's got a, a lovely archive of the ones that, that made a huge impact on him um, or that he thought were the most kind of culture changing things. But looking back, as he says, there aren't really many strategies in them for ready classroom deployment. They certainly aren't subject specific. They could be read and enjoyed and transformative in that for all sorts of teacher. But he thinks that kind of edgy blog is dead. The big hitters don't blog that much anymore. As I've said, a lot of them are the government. Um, every so often there's a good piece that gets that sort of traction. But what's interesting, I think, and then Zoe says this too, so I'm going to go between both of them. A lot of those people have written a lot of books by now, too, which also makes a difference. If you're writing a book, you won't blog new ideas. You'll shove it in your book. Vice versa, too. You might store ideas for your next book. And Zoe, the brace for me reading out more of your blog. There's the monetized aspect. Some people have made quite a lot of financial gain from their own blogs. Some people use them to sell and some people pay others to write them. Perhaps that makes us a little cynical. And I understand that, too. When I put out a blog which has my work logo attached to it, the readership is much lower. People don't necessarily want to engage with something that looks corporate. They want to engage with something real and preferably someone who's been standing in the classroom where they were today. So, huge divergent moves there. And I think, um, you know, what Matt, who's got like a, a very good blog that is read, kind of goes to the heart of both of those. It's very clearly Matt's blog. So it's not corporate, it's not branded, it's not monetized, they're not making money from it. Um, but at the same time, it's not about those huge philosophical questions. It is, as Adam is, is pointing us in the direction of travel, subject specific, tip specific. Um, and as Matt constantly points out whenever I say something too general, very much accessible to a new teacher. Uh, we have far too much in the habit of sort of waving our hands and saying, oh, this is unnecessary. Everybody does this already. Well, we might do it because we've been teaching for eight years, but but the basics of it need to be covered. Um, and then, so yeah, going back to Adam, either way, the most recent stuff coming out is quite different. Now it tends to be more subject specific and focused on what to do in the classroom. We all know what cognitive load theory is now. What do we do about it? Everyone knows retrieval practice is great. Okay, how do I do it in RE? How do I do it in maths? Should I do it in maths? That kind of stuff. Um, I sent I sent uh, Chris Curtis's tweet uh, blog about the limitations, what he discovered about the limitations of knowledge-rich education in English. I, I must have sent that link out about 30 times when he published that blog over the summer. It's really fascinating to start breaking down these larger educational thoughts into how they matter within our subjects. Um, so there's potentially that. 
And I'm going to end with, because um, I have overrun, I'm going to end with Zoe uh, and her reflections on the decline in readership. So I know there's a risk of being accused of vanity, she says, but I've been reflecting on my blogging over the last few months, particularly in relation to the lack of engagement I seem to be getting. I remember seeing Ben Newmark say something similar about the decline of blogging when I first started to put my thoughts together in this way and scoffing at the notion everyone seemed to be putting their thoughts down on virtual paper then, and I couldn't imagine a time when this would end. But maybe, hearing how I'm not alone in finding my rambling slide quickly to the bottom of the Twitter pile, it has. The sharing of resources type blogs are still well read, and rightly so too. People, after all, want to feel like they have walked away with something useful and practical, and there is no reason for us to reinvent the wheel. There's some amazing sharing going on, and doing this via blogs and blogging sites is a great way to do it. And I think what I'd like us to end it with is to something that Zoe and Alex um, both made central, what Toby's been making central with his comments throughout, what so many people do, is that there's also a role, a vital role, um, and it's alive, maybe not thriving, but definitely alive and maybe could thrive, for experimental, reflective thinking too, for messy rhizomatic to use Alex terms cyborgian types of edgy blogging Anna maybe we could argue less and write weird and wonderful things about mushrooms and the heat death of the universe more and really I should say that to myself shouldn't I because I get into fights all the time all right thank you very much guys I will as ever link um, a lot of the things I've mentioned here thank you so much to everyone contributing thank you to Matt for your fantastic blog. Thank you to Zoe for your intensely reflective practice. And thank you to everyone who's commented and especially to Alex for sitting in the car for an hour and entertaining us all. Um, I'll see you guys next week. It seems likely that I will be officially taking this slot, which is exciting because no one listens to you at nine. It's one thing to do a blog that people aren't reading. It's another thing entirely to talk into a vacuum at nine o'clock when people are in lessons. I don't recommend it. Okay. Bye, everyone. Audio is not working. So imagine an exciting tune playing you out, telling you that you've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Bye.